Well, Putin's war came to the Canberra Writers' Festival yesterday. Vladimir Putin, of course, launched a full-scale war against Ukraine in February 2022. And yesterday, a world authority on Soviet history, Mark Ederle, launched his new book, Russia's War Against Ukraine, The Whole Story. Now, that whole story is, of course, a long and complex one, but Marx distilled it into a very compact and compelling account of, quote, how Russia, Ukraine and the world got into this mess. Mark Idley is a professor of history at the University of Melbourne and a regular contributor to the Saturday paper, and he's right now a guest on Sunday Extra. Mark, welcome. Good morning. Mark, this is a war between two nation states that in technical terms came into existence quite recently, and you really cast it as a sort of existential conflict between what you call modern Ukraine and modern Russia. In your telling of it, when and how did modern Ukraine and modern Russia happen? Well, in the book, I follow the story back to the Middle Ages, but that is largely because both sides uh, traced themselves back mm. to the medieval polity of the Rus, uh, which was centered around Kiev. And both sides see their own state as a, as a continuation of that. Uh, I point out that both sides have pretty much as good claims on this heritage because there's no continuity of statehood uh, between either the modern Ukrainian or the modern uh, Russian state in that medieval entity. I then follow the histories of these two states all the way down to 1991, which is the beginning of the states we confront today. So with the breakdown of the Soviet Union, both the contemporary Ukrainian state and the contemporary Russian state came into existence uh, from the rubble of the Soviet Union, if you like. Um, but for Ukraine, there's an earlier important moment, and that is the Ukrainian mm. revolution of 1917-18, uh, and then the wars of independence, as the Ukrainians call them. Uh, for the Russians, this is part of the, the Russian Civil War, right? So what happens in World War I is the Romanov Empire, which had acquired or conquered Ukraine or good parts of Ukraine in earlier centuries, that breaks down during the war and you have several successor states. It's, it's, a, it's a terrible mess initially in 1918. There's some 30 or so governments claiming uh, authority over bits and pieces of that broken down empire. And then you have a prolonged period of both wars between these new entities and within them, so civil war and interstate war, which result in several successor states. And the successor states are the Soviet Union, Finland, Poland, and the three Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. Ukraine is not among them, but Ukraine did have a state for a short period of time coming out of this breakdown, and they were fighting for their statehood in this larger conflagration of the of the wars of the Romanov succession, which I usually then just call the Russian Civil War, but that's a very Russo-centric perspective. And because they were fighting so hard, the Bolsheviks decided to neutralize Ukrainian national sentiment by giving Ukraine statehood within the Soviet Union. So that's how you get to this strange situation that you have 
a centralized dictatorial state, which looks on paper like a confederation of individual states. So the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, by the post-war years, there's 15 of these republics, but that came into being in order to come to terms with Ukraine. And you really chart out the very different trajectories that Ukraine and Russia have had since 1991. Ukraine's trajectory being towards democracy and a civic form of nationalism, which allows for inclusion of a variety of ethnic groups. What's driven that trajectory? And perhaps you could recount for us what you see as some of the most critical moments in that trajectory. Yes. So this is not a a straight line, right? Where Ukraine becomes uh, more and more democratic. In most accounts, currently, it would be somewhere in the in the middling field of democracies in terms of democratic rights, democratic governance. Corruption is is a big problem still, but still in the region, Ukraine is the most democratic country after the three Baltic states, and the three Baltic states are of course parts of both the EU and NATO. So Ukraine came into existence with the breakdown of the Soviet Union, and it would veer again and again sort of towards more autocratic forms of governance, which was stopped twice by by revolution. So the first revolution is 2004-05, the so-called Orange Revolution, which was a response uh, to uh, presidential election fraud, which tried to maintain a Moscow-friendly regime. And that led to a nonviolent, but nevertheless, a successful revolution. So that, that's kind of the first upsurge of democratic governance after 1991. Then you see again a kind of move towards more and more autocratic forms of governance. And then you get to the second big and this time violent revolution of 2013-14, known as the Revolution of Dignity or Euromaidan, uh, which was again against a Moscow-friendly regime and ended then in the flight of the president, a new post-revolutionary democratic regime and Russian intervention and Russian annexation of Crimea. So in essence, that is the beginning of the war with Russia. If we compare Ukraine's development to Russia's development, and one wants to find sort of structural reasons why Russia became so quickly and consistently more autocratic than Ukraine. One of the parts which are often cited as the weak, one of the weaknesses of Ukrainian statehood uh, might in fact be one of the reasons why democracy survived, and that is the massive diversity cultural diversity, linguistic diversity, and regional diversity of that country. Uh, So no one elite group ever managed to really capture the state because of that great diversity. While in Russia, with a very centralized state to begin with, uh, it was much easier for uh, one group of the elite to capture the state. Yes, indeed. One group of the elite to capture the state and one man within that group to wholly dominate it. On Sunday Extra, we're speaking with Professor Mark Ederly, who is Professor of History at the University of Melbourne and the author of the new book, Russia's War Against Ukraine, The Whole Story. 
You've described this war as Putin's war and a bid by an ageing man to establish a legacy. I wonder if you could contrast the sort of individual factors in that with what you also describe as sort of general traits within a part of the Russian elite, which are all about re-establishing the concept of the Russian Empire. So the Soviet Union was in effect a continuation with a different political structure, uh, but otherwise in terms of the size of the country uh, or the real estate, if you like, they reconquered and the dominance of the Russians in that state, a continuation of the Romanov Empire in many ways. After 1991 is a very strong decolonial moment where many Russians also embrace a post-colonial identity and a hope for democratic future. And these two are very clearly also interlinked. Um, But it turned out to be very difficult for many parts of the Russian elite, well beyond the current people in power, so the broader intelligentsia as well, to really come to terms with the breakdown of what they saw as their empire. And so while for Ukrainians, it was much easier to embrace a a post-colonial identity because uh, Ukraine could see itself as now a post-colonial state which is free of colonial oppression. But if you're the metropole, this is much harder to deal with, right? I mean, remember the difficulties, for example, Britons sometimes have with the end of the British Empire, right? So it's not unique to Russia. So essentially what this war is about is the reestablishment of the Russian Empire from the Russian side and resistance to that from the Ukrainian side. However, the real trigger for this war is really decisions by Putin, uh, which have very much to do with his own sense of history, of himself, where he stands, and his legacy. Mark, one of the things you do in the book is break down the various aspects of Russian power, military, economic, nuclear, etc. And from all those perspectives, it seems like Ukraine's resistance is an unlikely outcome. What do you put the, the, the relative success of Ukraine in the conflict so far down to? There are several aspects. One is motivation, clearly. The Ukrainians, by and large, know what they're fighting for. Most of the Russians who are there don't really know what they're fighting for. Military and political leadership. The Ukrainians have prepared for such an onslaught for quite a long time and have clearly some very gifted military leaders in place on all levels of command. The political leadership, to the surprise of many, including myself, with President Zelensky really stepping up, and his ability to both mobilize the nation, uh, but also mobilize international support. And he seems to leave the business of military decision to the professionals. And then on the other hand, you have a Russian army, which is very poorly led, deeply corrupt, very often not maintained its equipment very well. The majority of the troops are not very well trained. The logistics have not been worked out properly. This was not meant to take a year and a half, right? But it was meant to take a few weeks. And then, of course, the support from NATO and increasingly then also the EU, of course, helped uh, enormously. But 
the Battle of Kiev, which is absolutely central to destroying the, the Russian military plans, that was largely fought with Ukrainian equipment rather than NATO equipment. And indeed, if they win the war, support from the democratic world, that will have to continue thereafter because the destruction and the costs of rebuilding this country will be quite substantial as well. Yeah, the stats that you recount of just the economic devastation that's been wrought on Ukraine and putting it in historical perspective really are quite bracing to contemplate. Just finally, Mark, you line up against the so-called realist school of thought, which treats Russia as a great power and says that it, even if it's reluctantly, it has to be given uh, a buffering sphere to either influence or dominate. Uh, why do you reject that line of thought? Well, I mean, there, <laughs> there's a whole uh, range of reasons. One, first of all, um, there is uh, a real empirical question here, whether or not uh, Russia indeed is a great power. And I go to some uh, extent uh, through the various indicators in the at the beginning of the book. Uh, and really, you know, in terms of um, in terms of economic might, uh, in terms of um, uh, in 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 terms of uh, uh, military might, uh, all of that it is actually not very. It's very difficult to say. You know, this is a a, a huge power, um, except of course nuclear, right? I mean, it is a major. Well, one of the two major uh, nuclear powers. So, what makes it a superpower in many ways is, or a, a great power, or what makes Many Russians think that they are a great power. Is the is the nuclear uh, arsenal? Um, uh, but there's also something strangely um, ahistorical and and sort of a, a kind of a circular logic here. Um, so the the argument goes something like this: Everybody knows that Russia is a great power, therefore. It should do as it pleases in its neighborhood, which therefore makes it, in fact, a great power once they dominate uh, all of the countries which used to be part of the great power. Um, but, you know, in 1991 or in 1992 or in 1995 or indeed uh, in 2023, Russia is not a great power. It only is a great power if we accept that it is. So just because it has a history where it was in certain moments a great power, um, you know, 1945, it was a great power. Um, 1914, it was a great power. 1918, it wasn't, right? So um, uh, the, 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 the logic of that argument um, uh, presumes that there's, there's no history here. There's no change over time. Uh, and, you know, great powers don't rise and fall. Um, and then there's, of course, also a political problem with that, because uh, if you say that, you know, great powers somehow a priori have the right to dominate their neighbors, um, uh, you completely disregard the wishes of the neighbors, right? Um, some of whom happen to be democratic countries um, hmm. and many of whom do not want to live under uh, Russian uh, domination. So uh, there's a political uh, issue with that argument as well, I think. And, and you know, realism 
would actual realism that you know taking reality into account would take these things into account um it's just that a certain a certain school of uh, international relations scholarship um has uh, appropriated this term sort of as a pr exercise if you like um, to say we are the realists and everybody who disagrees with that is not is is somehow you know airy fairy or so and so i i re reject that whole notion that this is realism really Mark Italy is the Hanson Professor of History at the University of Melbourne, and his new book is called Russia's War Against Ukraine, The Whole Story. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.